BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Don't believe me? Well, consider these facts. The first cell phone was invented here. So was the first television remote control. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, November 12, 2020. That's the day we're doing the interview. Of course, you'd be listening to this conversation I'm about to have any time. I'll give you a... Uh, indication of what's going on in the world. Three headlines on the front page of today's New York Times. Good God, this world is insane. As resurgence of virus overwhelms the states, Washington pulls back. Washington is D.C. Washington is President Donald Trump and the Republicans just ignoring this virus that's overwhelming our country right now. So bizarre. Biden has plans, but Georgia will have its say. The fate of the Senate is still up in the air. Uh, there's a special election, two special elections in Georgia in January. And then this one, Trump borrows election tactics from autocrats. Say no more. We're going to do a lot of political discussion with uh, my distinguished guest. Distinguished guest, as I, do, as I always do, please introduce yourself. Hi, this is Delia Ramirez now state representative of the fourth house district for the second term yes second term yeah i'm not i'm no longer well i'll no longer be a freshman effective inauguration january of 2021 that's good now you got to tell will Cazardi, hey you go get the donuts all right i'm sick <laughs> in, in in basketball they always made the rookies get the donuts now you get to tell uh will Cazardi, you go get those freaking donuts uh yes uh, he never asked me to get the donuts so oh he never did oh just <laughs> Point of clarification there, Will Cazardi has never asked her. All right, maybe they don't do that in Springfield, uh, hazing, that kind of hazing, uh, Delia. Yeah, so congratulations. And uh, before we get started uh, with the political stuff, like congratulations in your personal life. You just told me this before we went in the air. Uh, you are recently married. So uh, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that. Go ahead. Thank you. I, um, I found pandemic, hashtag pandemic love. I guess that's what people are calling it these days. I, um, quick, quick story. Elections happened. They were rough in the primary and, uh, we should have probably not had elections happen the way they did. I came home and felt really sick, quarantined. And it was in that quarantine on day 13th, I think, uh, that now my husband reached out to me uh, you know, on this old social media platform we use called Facebook. <laughs> Congratulations. I know apparently it's a social, it's an old thing, and I'm old now too, um, because I don't know that I'm an elder millennial. But I uh, reached out to me to say congratulations and ask how I was doing. He too is Guatemalan from the same town my family's from. And while I had ignored him in the past, I didn't ignore him that day. And the rest is history. <laughs> wow! Well, congratulations. That's wonderful. Uh, something good that came out of the pandemic. Uh, and congratulations, Delia, on uh, being reelected. 
I didn't even know you had an opponent. Excuse my ignorance. I didn't even know you had an opponent. Uh, in the re- that's how little I was paying attention. To I didn't list. have an opponent, but I still needed someone to vote. And, you know, so I did well, not. Your vote would have made it one to nothing. Uh, <laughs> so congratulations. That's why I wasn't paying attention. Uh, I remember the first time you ran. This is how things changed in Chicago. It was a, a very heated a race. Uh, you came on my radio show. I, I brought up. And then after you came on, all the other candidates said, hey, how come you got to bring me. All right. So they all came on and uh, you were victorious. Uh, Joe's candidate. Uh, Anyway, it's ancient history. Um, All right. Let's let's talk. There you go. Wow. Yeah. Just one big happy family in the northwest side of Chicago. Um, (laughs) What's that? I wouldn't go that far. Okay, yeah, that's a stretch. All right. Let's um, uh, Delia, as people know, uh, who follow her career, listen to the show. Uh, is a very much of the progressive persuasion, uh, a left of center Democrat. And so let's just start with your general uh, thoughts on what went down. We've been talking a lot about the uh, presidential election, the national elections that just took place, Delia, and sort of what it means for our country, where we're going uh, for good and bad. So let's just start with sure your general takeaways of what went down on election night. Listen, Ben, I, well, what what went down on election night, I think it was a a moment again in some kind of repeat of 2016 of additional disappointment by many people that uh, this election was not won immediately. And while we knew that that wouldn't be the case because of the number of mail-in ballots, uh, in the coming days, the fact that we were not uh, winning, you know, by a greater margin uh, tells us that we are glad that while Trump does not accept and concede that we have, uh, the Democrats have won the election, but we certainly haven't won as a country. The fact that 70 million plus people voted for Donald J. Trump, despite of what he has and continues to be in this nation, tells us that we have a long, long damn way to go to really become the kind of country that Democrats talk about being a country for all, a country of unity, a country of of equity. So, you know, I say to you that I'm grateful that we are that we've won this election. I feel that the media has not done justice in talking about a lot of the unsung heroes that pulled and pulled hard to make this election happen. But there are people that have been, um, I would say to you, on the margins who put everything on the line to elect Biden. And I want to make sure that we do not forget that without those people, we would not have won. And that there is a great expectation come with this election and this victory that we actually do what we said we would do. Uh, when he campaigned and when so many of us jumped on his bandwagon uh, to support him. Who are some of those unsung heroes that should get some credit? Certainly, I think that we need to continue to uplift the uh, the black women who have always and continue to do so. Um, yes, of course, Stacey Abrams and a number of people in Georgia, as in Philadelphia and other parts of the country. I also got to say to you that it is 2020. And I still don't see enough recognition of the Latinos that are not Trump supporters that moved so hard and pushed so much in order to help win this election and the work that they've done in Arizona and Philadelphia and even in parts of Georgia like Mi Gente, which is a national organization that has really talked about we can't say no human being is illegal without saying Black Lives Matter. They go hand in hand. So I'd say that a lot of that 
I, I was really disappointed in how quickly the media talks about, well, Latinos are Trump supporters because Venezuelans and Cubans, in majority, voted for him while negating the other 21 countries that uh, don't represent Cuba or Venezuela who did not vote for him. So, so I just want to really uplift uh, the many unsung people, uh, the DACA recipients that could not vote, but mobilized every single person they could to vote in Arizona, uh, to vote in Nevada and throughout the country. Yeah, I think it's time you talk about the media. Just sort of try to figure out what what what, what do you mean? Define what you mean by Latino. Like a Cuban American in Miami has a total different reality, Adelia, than uh, someone a Puerto Rican who lives in Chicago or a Mexican American who lives in Nevada, or Arizona. The reality of a Cuban American from the moment you left Cuba back in the 60s uh, in response to the Castro uh, regime, you were welcome to this country. You were ushered into this country. A totally different regime. And you grew up, if you're even if you're a youngster, in, in a world where uh, your entire environment, people are denouncing Castro. And so that shapes your view. I don't why anybody would think that the Cuban-American vote uh, and Latino, I really struggle with this one, Deli. Help me out here. The Cuban American vote of the entire Latino population in this country, and yet we make the majority two percent. Say that again. They're two percent of the Latino population in this country, and yet we 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 make them the homogeneous community that got that that contributed to Trump's election. Yes. Right? I mean, it's 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 crazy to me. It's ignorance. It's racism. <laughs> well, I, and what I the point I was going to make. Uh, is that I don't know what Joe Biden could have done uh, to win over Cuban-American voters. The, the reality is, if you read much of the rhetoric of the leaders, uh, including the woman who just won as uh, the is now congresswoman from that area, uh, defeated Shalala, Donna Shalala, much of the rhetoric is extremely anti-socialism. So if you're a democratic socialist, you're automatically got two strikes against you. And many of Joe Biden's uh, supporters, at least for this election, were Bernie Sanders, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, you know, type Democratic socialists. Mm-hmm. So that's two strikes against the guy. I don't know what he could have done to win any more of that vote. I don't think that he needed to focus on winning their vote. You know, I think in organizing, we talk about who are the, you know, who's the target, who are the opponents, and and who are the people on the fence. I, I don't think that investing all the effort and energy um, in moving them is the right strategy. They're not going to move. And quite frankly, you've got to understand there's some PTSD and other things and the whitening of of some Cubans that makes it quite difficult for them to, to ever consider voting for someone that's not a Republican or a white man. But, but I do have to say to you that we could, and, and I say this about a lot of elections. I certainly have said it directly to governor Pritzker is you have to start, you have to stop assuming that the Latino vote is all an immigrant vote and the Latino vote will automatically be a Democrat vote. You got to work for our votes. And we don't do that. And I certainly don't think we did enough of that in the presidential. We don't do enough of that in a lot of elections. And there are 21, 22 other countries that are not Cuban, right, that, that don't that don't have communism. You know, it's Salvador. And, and when you think about Nicaragua and when you think about Costa Rica and you think about Peru and other parts of the parts of Latin America, their experience, to your point, Ben, are very, very different. I have Venezuelan friends 
who have sat in my, you know, at my kitchen table crying about what's happening to their family right now under the presidency, the president, you know, under the current president, and and why they negate socialism, right? And I'll argue with them left and right. That's not socialism. What's happening there? But every time, like to your point, when they hear a democratic socialist talk about socialism, Venezuelans think about people starving and dying and leaving Venezuela. So I, I think that what we could be doing, and we haven't done enough, is we don't do enough in the one-on-one conversations, in the relationship building, and really getting to the core of what people are going through and experiencing, and authentically connecting with them in such a way that they trust that, you know, voting for a Democrat in this case is voting for their best interest. We do a lot of assumptions and we think that, and we do this blanket uh, strategy that assumes that everyone's in the same place and we're not. Well, when you talk about the right strategy to pursue, what kinds of arguments would you raise or what kinds of uh, points would you make if you wanted to uh, convince uh, more Latino voters to vote Democratic? You know, I think AOC said it well. There's a couple of things that we did not do, and I think Republicans have mastered, right? Uh, certainly their digital organizing, their digital campaign. Uh, I mean, and a perfect example is even in Illinois. If I saw this woman from the suburbs um, at the grocery store on my Facebook newsfeed one more time, I mean, I was like, I, I, I almost felt like I knew her. I almost, at some point, thought I was related to her because I saw her so much. She started looking like a family member. Right? <laughs> so I, I got to say, we have to do a better job in our digital campaigns. I, you know, I can only speak, and even speaking on behalf of Latino community, I can only speak from my own direct perspective, is that more and more Latinos are all up on even Snapchat and TikTok and certainly this old school social media, Facebook. We have to do a better job in getting the message out and do it in a creative way. But we also have to do better in some of the other earned media that we didn't do we didn't do as much as we could have. And I think the bottom line piece that Ben, you hear me talk about all the time, it is the direct community organizing. The truth is that there's so much shit that stuff sorry, that people hear um, daily that it's kind of difficult to know what is true and what is not. It is the family member, the cousin, the sister, or or the social worker friend who's talking to you about the issues that really helps people understand and see uh, where their values and this election goes. And I think, yes, this pandemic had a lot to do with the inability to do the door knocking and the one-on-one, but there could have been a number of ways that we could have done that more and we need to learn from this moment. All right. Now, uh, before we get a little more specific about Democrats, let's just take a look at uh, Donald Trump's uh, vote. Uh, there are a lot of people say, well, 2016 was just a one shot deal. People would, uh, were just sort of trying him out. Once they saw what he was really like, they would leave him. And that was absolutely not the case. Uh, he increased his support from 2016 among his base. Uh, and when you look at Donald Trump's connection with his voters, what do you attribute that to? Why do you think there's such loyalty on the part of Donald Trump's voters to Donald John Trump? I feel like I, I've heard people say to me they he's so relatable, you know, and that you know I know he's been doing all these fundraising emails to help him so that he can, you know, so that he can regain his one election, and 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 there's a section where he says if you pay this much, if you donate this amount, you will now become automatically part of the Trump family, and that sells, right? I, I think that 
people feel like he is saying what they felt for a long time. You know, this is beyond Trump. Trump will be gone from the White House. The structural racism, the white supremacy that got him elected and got him more votes now than he got in 2016 will remain among us. And I really feel like we oftentimes assume that, oh, God, we won the election. The world is better. Let's move on until the next election comes along and we see that the people that voted for us no longer vote for us because we did nothing. And so I really think that we need to spend some time thinking about like, what, what, what is it about Trump? Cause I thought, right. A number of us thought in 2016, Latinos, the 26% of Latinos that voted for Trump will never vote for him again. They will now see the effect of children in cages and the list goes on. And yet somehow evangelicals, in addition to Cubans and Venezuelans and others that you want to argue, voted for him in this election, some who did not vote for him and voted for Clinton or didn't vote at all. So I think there's there's this, this connection to him that this man speaks my language and he is not um, a polished, uh, I would say, put on the shelf politician, but this is a man that speaks his truth even if the truth doesn't sound politically correct. I think the, I think the other piece of that is that uh, people really believe that he, somehow that it, it, as crazy as it sounds, a number of people really believe that he's the one that gave them the checks. He's the one that sent them the food. Uh, he's the one that's going to make sure that, um, you know, this whole thing about babies and, and, and same-sex marriage, that, you know, he he's the man of God. And don't get me into that and the number of arguments I've had with family members about this and friends who voted for this man and have undocumented family members. So there's there's a lot of that. And you know, and I guess the last thing I would say to you around voting for Trump versus voting for Biden. People do want to see something different. I mean, you you a, a perfect example is that Bernie, right? And and AOC, people can argue a lot of things about both of them. But people really appreciate someone that is willing to be pissed off about stuff, call it as it is. You know, uh, well, truth, not the fake news that he has. But people want to see someone that I guess I just go back to my first point. People want to see someone that's relatable. Well, wow, it's very bizarre. I hear what you're saying. This is the notion that uh, a billionaire who <laughs> there's, there's no really, really a con man, you know, he's, he's not even really he's not even a billionaire. Uh, would be relatable, but I understand exactly no, the point you're making. Crazy to me, they think that this man was a poor man who became wealthy because he busted his butt, you know, pulled himself from his bootstraps, and understands what it's like to be poor in rural, rural America. Right? It's it's crazy. So here's the the dilemma and the decision uh, Democrats are facing: uh, Should they try to tailor? what they're doing to win over that 48% that now has voted for Trump twice, or should they just plow ahead and do their thing? The way Trump plowed ahead. By the way, if you want to do like Trump, Trump never got 50% of the vote. Trump barely had an electoral college margin in 2016. You know this. Mm -hmm. And he just plowed ahead like he had a mandate anyway, did his thing. So should the Democrats... Which one of those choices do you think the Democrats should choose? I think it's a tough one. It's almost like saying you want to convert racist into anti-racist, which 
yes, the world would be a better place. Uh, and and you and you want people to want to be woke. Uh, look, I think that we should focus on being consistent and doing what we say. I think I really believe that if we under this un, un, under this uh, this new administration, right under Biden and Kamala, if we do not if we do not do what we say, which I know people are, you are, you campaign, but you really can't do everything you say. We are going to lose more people. So I think the first thing is don't lose more people, right? Um, and certainly don't lose them to Trump. Um, the second piece of that is that there were still a number of people that did not vote. We got to talk about that. There were still a substantial number of people, even with the highest voter turnout we've had, that did not vote. And you got to ask yourself the question, like, the world is up in flames. Our hospitals are maxed out with COVID patients. And yet you still did not vote. Why? Hmm. We got to ask ourselves that question and maybe focus on answering that and doing what we need to do. That would be, that would be my initial response. Ben. Okay. All right. So what are some, when you talk about uh, promises that must be kept, uh, to convince the people who voted for Biden that that vote was worthwhile. Just give me some examples uh, of the kind of promises legislatively that uh, that Biden should pursue mm-hmm. to keep his majority. A number of those, right? And I think some of those are prominent, some of the things that he wasn't as uh, prominent to talk about. But, you know, of course, as biased as one would make me, having married also a dreamer, I would say that uh, I expect and hope that we will have a Clean Dream Act passed in the next year. I will hope that he will reverse some of the executive orders that Trump has put in place uh, where, you know, I think even this basic of the curriculum of removing curriculum that is inclusive to make it more patriotic, according to him. Mm -hmm. Um, So stuff like that needs to be removed. I would say to you that we have to we have to move on Medicare for all. And while I know that that wasn't, you know, the most prominent thing that he talked about, we talked about healthcare reform. We are a long way to go from healthcare for all. And we really, if this pandemic doesn't demonstrate that and the importance of making healthcare a human right, not a privilege, I'm not quite sure what would, right? So I think those are some of the ones that I think about. I certainly think that, you know, the conversation about racial equity, you know, I saw it in the in the DNC. I was a delegate for Bernie in the DNC, although, you know, uh, it was what it was. Uh, there was a 30-minute conversation about racial equity, and in some ways I felt like a lot of that didn't have concrete commitments from the administration on the equity pieces on racial equity. So I would like to see like a full agenda that actually lives into what that means to, to really be a country that takes on racism and dismantling it at all levels. Mm-hmm. And it really um, requires for us to have people that look like this nation um, at all levels of leadership to change, you know, the context and, and change the inequities. So I think a lot of that is going to have to happen. Uh, you know, we've got to talk about clean air and we've got to talk about this green new deal. I mean, we like how much more time do we have to do something and be proactive? So I can go on the list and list goes on. And, you know, in campaign finance, it's something that we we've been talking about for a very long time. But people are in free college tuition. Right. People are counting on something to happen because I don't know how much more do we how much more do you tell people 
well, not this time, but next time we'll get to your concerns. Mm-hmm. Next time we'll get to your livelihood. Uh, people are tired of it. Uh, you talk about uh, economic equity, and uh, that was, of course, literally on the ballot here in Illinois. One of my biggest disappointments uh, from Election Day, uh, Delia, is that the fair tax. I, I can't even stand the name anymore, to be honest with you. I just It was the worst name in the world to begin with, and uh, but that, that was the name, so we had to stick with it, just retelling the tale. I hate saying all oh, that fair tax. That initiative was voted down. Uh, statewide, it had to get sixty percent to pass. Uh, it, I can't remember what the total was. It's been too depressing. Maybe, yeah. It got forty-five. <laughs> oh God, let's. Oh, now even more depressed I was than when I started the question. All right, uh, so I'm really struggling with this. You know, when Donald Trump gave a huge tax break to the wealthiest people of uh, America. That puts states and cities like Illinois and Chicago in difficult straits because they had to raise money on everybody else to make up for the money they're not getting from the feds. Uh, And so here in Illinois, we try to raise the rates of the highest people and it gets rejected by people who it would have been a tax break to. I'm like, I I can't can't even get the words out, Delia. Like, what lessons do you learn from the failure of the fair tax? And what do you think Democrats should do going forward? Oh, we shouldn't use the word tax and fair in the same sentence because no one believes that those two, te- those two words can go in the same sentence, right? Mm. Uh, there's a lot, there's a mess, there's a number of issues. I mean, I think you're right, Ben. 97% of us would have seen a decrease or no, or, or no change in our taxes, right? I mean, uh, to me, it's like common sense. Therefore, ninety-seven percent of us should be voting yes for a fair tax, leaving you know leaving a lot of wiggle room between the sixty to ninety-seven, and yet we got to forty-five. Um, I think there's a number of things. I've heard people tell me over and over there was a message issue. We didn't have a consistent message, and the word tax, particularly in the midst of this pandemic, is the greatest venom. It, it is it is poison. And it is death to people. The word tax is just, you, you could have you could have said uh, reduce tax. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I just think the word tax right now. So I, I think that it was, you know, I've heard a number of people say to me, I voted yes because you explained it to me, or I voted yes because someone told me that either vote yes. But when they've read even the, re- the question, the referendum question on the ballot, it was confusing for them. It took a while for them to get to the section that it said, you know, that it would be based on income. So there's there's a lot of uh, lessons learned around that messaging, consistency, coordinated efforts. Look, I, I, a couple of my colleagues might be pissed at me for saying this, but like, why were some just? Why did it feel like just a few of us were busting our ass trying to move this so that we can bring some fairness and 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 create the revenue that we needed? While it felt like some people had already seen a poll and said it's going to it's going to fail anyway. I'm not going to spend the time to really educate my constituents about the benefits of a reduction or a remain a tax structure that is going to ensure that their taxes don't go up. I didn't. I, I didn't see all of us all in. Well, I'll, depending their election, but it, a lot of people didn't have an opponent. 
Well, I'll, I'll give you my theory on this, which is easy for me to do because I'm not running for office, never ran for office, wouldn't make the ballot if I tried to run for office. And if I did make the ballot, I'd get clobbered uh, by <laughs> someone like you who's a lot better at it than I am. But uh, to me, this typifies pretty much everything that I see wrong with the Democratic Party. And I say this as a guy who votes Democratic year after year. They don't stand for anything. So, like, just like in the debates when uh, Mike Pence said Green New Deal and uh, Kamala Harris ran away from it, no, that's not what we're about. She was thinking, no, she, instead of embracing it, she was saying, that's not what we're about. And so, so many Dems I know in Chicago, they were like, I don't want it. It's a tax. I don't want anything to do with it. I, I'm not going to push it. And I know a lot of the aldermen they didn't push it, state reps didn't push it. Uh, because they didn't want to be associated with it. And then if you pushed, asked them about it, they go, well, uh, here's the thing. Uh, as a state uh, elected official, um, it would look, it would hurt the cause if I pushed it because then it would be a Springfield politician pushing it. Tell me, what kind of, mis- what kind of logic is that? You either believe in something or you don't believe in it. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, but I think sometimes we're far more interested in getting reelected than actually doing the work that we got elected to do. And and I'm going to tell you, Ben, I spend a lot of time at early voting sites talking to people. You would be shocked at the number of people who did not know what this ballot question was. Certainly, I've seen what Ken Griffin said in a commercial, and they were going to vote no based on that commercial because no one has spent the time to explain to them this that it was not a new tax that it was a restructure based on income so the rich pay their fair share and you get a reduction or no, no change. And when I had those conversations and I said, and I asked people, right. And, and I have a district with people that make 250,000 or more. And I have a district with people that make nothing. So when I talked to people, what I said to them was I was in the room where the vote happened. I was a co-sponsor, a proud co-sponsor of the bill that brought this the question onto the onto the ballot. Do you have questions or are there things that you've heard that you need me to clarify? It really meant a lot for constituents to talk to someone who was in the room where it happened, like Hamilton sings, and and actually clarify some of their concerns or for them to tell me how they think it's a messed up you know, or why they why they weren't supporting it? It really, I think, it's the opposite of what what people have said. That oh no, it sounds like I'm pushing it because it's a it's a Springfield deal. No, they they want to ask you hard questions about it. Sometimes they just want you to clarify what it is and what it's not, mm-hmm. and then they can make their decision on the ballot. Ninety percent of the people that I talk to, then either we're going to vote for it already, right? Because we had called or something, or they, or we're not sure and walked out saying, well, absolutely. We need this change in structure. Why are we one of four only? Why are we, why are we still one of these four States who make it as a flat tax? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it tells me that we did a poor job in explaining what it is and what it's not. Yeah. And, and we did not do our due diligence in talking to our constituents about it. Uh, no. And I, and I, uh, I remember Pat Quinn came on the show, former governor Pat Quinn, uh, and I just his instinctive reaction when we had the discussion was that you automatically have to link it to a cut in a property tax. You automatically, that's what it should be. It's like, we're going to cut your property, vote to cut your property taxes. At a point. And, you know, uh, all right, going forward, uh, what do you think is going to be happening uh, 
on the state level to try to make up for the money you're not going to be getting uh, from the fair tax and from all the money that we're losing because of the pandemic? What do I see moving forward? Mm-hmm. I see that if we're not careful, we'll enter this austerity way of doing things. I I think that, you know, in absence of veto, we have to really spend some time thinking about or revisiting progressive revenue options we had looked at in the past. I don't, you know, I, I heard a number of people talked as this fair tax campaign was moving and said, you know, you can either you can either vote to change this tax structure so you pay less or you don't have a change, or you pay more by by Springfield just increasing your flat tax, the flat rate. And and I and I think about yes, that's true. It could happen. I don't want to get into the fear tactics of or deciding that that's the only thing we could do. I think that there's a number of things that we should be thinking about and progressive ways of looking at revenue before we look at that to fill the $3.2 billion gap we have. I also think that we need to be following um, what we'll be able to obtain through the federal funds that will come now that Trump will hopefully be gone sooner than later. Um, but you know, as, as, as we look at the HEROES Act moving through the Senate in whatever way it will move, considering the majority of the Republicans uh, you know, there, but something's going to have to move there. And I really believe that we need to think about creatively how we use CARES funding to help fill some of those gaps that, you know, are allocated and authorized because a lot of these gaps are related to the human service work that we need to get done. What we don't need to be doing is thinking about a 15, 20, 30% cut in human services in a moment where the state could see a potential of 1.7 million people evicted upon the moratorium being lifted of evictions. Yeah, we are uh, facing a crisis on both ends of this. The the money that we're going to be needing to spend to meet the needs that people are facing and the money that we're going to be needing to make up for the money we're not getting. It is a tough uh, position that the state is in, no doubt about it. All right, closing question, and maybe the hardest one of all. Michael Joseph Madigan, House Speaker, Chairman of the Democratic Party. You're, of course, a member of his caucus in the House. Uh, and there's a movement afoot uh, to ask that he step down as chairman of the Democratic Party, uh, holding him responsible and accountable for some of the legislative losses and the loss of the fair tax. Your thoughts on Michael Joseph Madigan? Well, I'll, I'll first start by saying I don't think that he is a sole response, the sole person responsible for the for the loss of the fair tax. I think that we all had a responsibility. Um, certainly, some had more responsibility than others. Uh, so that I, I want to say that I, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to be quite honest with you, Ben. I have not made a decision on my vote, and I know that's that's you know that's hard for some people to hear, considering. I see myself as a progressive on the left of the left. Here's what I'll tell you. Over the last four or five months, I probably received five calls about Madigan in my district. And I've received more than 8,922 calls about people asking, where will I sleep tonight? What do I do when my landlord does not renew the lease? How long will it take for this housing relief fund that you guys fought so hard for to actually go through so that I can pay my my mortgage or pay my landlord? What I'm hearing people ask me is, where the heck do I go test and why do I have to wait for five hours in line? What they're asking me is, if Trump wins, does that mean that my entire family gets deported? 
the list goes on, Ben. That's what I hear every single day. So I'm going to tell you what I told the speaker when I told other people. I have spent very little time thinking about his election. And I spent my entire time that I'm not falling in love with my husband, right? Um, <laughs> really spending that time thinking about what the hell are we going to do so that the most vulnerable who are black and brown people in the state don't end up in the street when I know for a fact that right now, in this point in time count we did in January of how many people are homeless in the state of Illinois, we said that only 15,000 people were registered and we can't seem to figure out how to help them. How the hell are we going to do so if we have 100,000 people in the street? I've spent time thinking about that. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what does what has to move legislatively so that people are not in the street. And literally in the Latino community, we have the highest rate of COVID um, contraction. What do we do? to reduce that number when we know so many of them live in multi-generational homes. That's what I told the speaker. And I've said, I want to hear what, what the hell we're going to do to make housing a top priority. And I want to know why the hell we don't have a housing committee in the House of Representatives in the state of Illinois to address this. So I haven't made that decision, but I will say to you that the second thing I said to him is, I got elected by a group of grassroots people. You know a few of them. My good friend Ryan Cowher is one of them. And I have a responsibility to that group in the decision of that nature. So I don't make that decision without consulting with them. And I've begun this week after the election to have really heated, long conversations about the pros and cons of a Madigan election come January. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, fair enough. Let me just say this, Mike Maddox, if you're listening to this, that's the kind of answer you should have given. This is my pet peeve. This is me speaking, not Delia. So don't punish her for what I say. Uh, I believe that you've not nearly been forceful enough at defending yourself. If you, Michael Joseph Madigan, believe that you're being unfairly treated by the Republicans and you believe that you're the best person to carry forth the interests of working people, and middle-class people, and union people, then stand up and say it. And don't go, come out of the cave and say it. Don't just put it all on Delia Ramirez and uh, other state reps to say it. That's that's my personal belief, uh, Delia. I just had to get that off my chest. But thank you for getting off your chest. It, it sounded like you really needed to do that. <laughs> I did. I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of this. He's Wizard of Oz and he's in the cave and he sends out these little smoke signals and everybody's trying to figure out what the great Madigan said. No, man, take a page from Trump. Say what you think. I don't agree with Trump, but he puts it out there. You get what I'm saying? And he, he counterattacks. So if you believe you've been unjustly criticized, and gone after by the powers that be, the Kenny G's of the world, Kenny mm-hmm. Griffin's of the world, come out and say it. Don't leave it to Delia. There you go. I got that off my chest. I feel a lot better already, Delia. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to say before I let you go? You know, the, I think the last thing I say to you, Ben, is that I am grateful for spaces where we can express ourselves. And I I remember Election Day and running into a lot of people who voted for me the first time. Uh, and people who've called my office in the last nine months. And I had a guy who told me, oh, you know why I voted for you? And I responded, because I had heard this joke a couple times throughout the day, because I was the only one on the ballot. And he (laughs) said, no, I would still not have voted for you if that was the mere purpose or reason for my vote. He said, I voted for you because five months ago I called your office because I needed help with ID, yes? And I was on the verge of losing my apartment here in Ukrainian village. 
and your office answered my call. I voted for you. Not only did you answer the call, you figured out how to advocate for me, and then you followed up with an email. I voted for you because I called a, a, a politician's office and they actually helped me. That's why. So I leave that with you to say that shit, the, the bar is low, but at the same time, it, we are reminded that we got to come back to why the hell we run for this seat. And if we're not going to be about the people, and you know I'm a full-time legislator, I took a cut to do this, and I have no regrets in doing it. But if we're not going to be about that, people are not going to keep electing you. Everything is changing. People expect you to do your job, and as they should. So I think it's a new day. I am grateful for Dagmara Avelar, who's the most um, newest member of the House, a Latina from Joliet who was undocumented just years ago. And I'm thankful uh, for a house that looks very different from what even looked like three years ago. I think that we're in the right place to challenge the status quo and really do the work of the people. All right. Very good. Thank you very much, Delia. It's Delia Ramirez. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.